Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 5 in our 2 Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Looking to the Resurrection with Christ, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-10. through 10. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, these are really thrilling verses. 2 Corinthians 5 is one of the great chapters in the New Testament, as uh, we're going to find out, God willing, in the next podcast or two, talking about different motivations to do evangelism. But here Paul's talking about, uh, I believe, the resurrection body and his mentality about life in the mortal body, the decaying body, uh, the body that is uh, in bondage to decay, but still a useful tool uh, for the glory of God in this world. But how much Paul yearns to be in his resurrection body. And he's got a philosophy that he wants to commend to the Corinthians, his way of thinking about life in the body and the hope that he has, the anticipation he has of someday being in that resurrection body. But beyond all that, we're going to see at the end of this uh, little section that we're studying today, the significance of verse 10 that someday every Christian is going to have to give an account for everything that we do in the body, whether good or bad. Many Christians are surprised about that. They think that they will not have any kind of negative accounting after death on judgment day, but this verse clearly teaches that we must give an account. So it gives us motivation to live a holy life and be pleasing to God. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, let me go ahead and read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-10 through 10, as we begin our time together. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life." He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What does Paul mean by the tent that is our earthly home, and what does Paul say is going to happen to the earthly tent we dwell in? Well, he uses this metaphor of a tent as a temporary dwelling place, uh, something that is not permanent, the idea of a tent versus a house or building is one of impermanence, permanence versus permanence. And Peter also uses the same image in uh, his writing in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, I know that I will soon put aside the tent of this body, as the Lord Jesus has made plain to me. We also have the idea of the incarnation, uh, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That means tabernacled or pitched his tent with us. So again, the tent here, I think, refers to our mortal bodies, the bodies we live in in this world. 
Now, how does our aging, this natural process that happens to all of us and gradual dying challenge our faith? And what's some comfort that Paul gives us in these verses? Well, Paul talks about his earthly tent being destroyed. Um, He says uh, earlier in chapter 4, verse 16, just a a few verses before this, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Uh, And earlier than that, very famously, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. So these bodies are jars of clay, and they're getting cracked, and they're getting broken, and chips are breaking off. And and just with use, uh, we break down. It's also part of the judgment that our entire human race is under in Adam. Mm. The wages of sin is death. And so the process of decay, of destruction, also that Paul talks about, in Romans chapter 8, the entire physical world is in bondage to decay. We are wearing away. We are breaking down. And it is discouraging. Uh, It's hard as you age. The older you get, you lose capabilities. You reach a a peak, a pinnacle of physical strength and vitality, maybe in your early 20s. Your eyesight is clear. Your hearing is sharp. Your body is energetic. Your muscles are strong. You're in your prime. Uh, And then you uh, continue to live. And in your 30s and 40s and 50s and then beyond 60s, 70s, 80s, Mm. little by little by little, you lose capabilities and it can be very discouraging. And I think it's also uh, a sense of the unnaturalness of death. We were not made to die. Our eyes were not made to not be able to see. Our ears were not created to be deaf. And so it's a judgment from God. And so in that sense, it is discouraging. But we as Christians have the hope of the resurrection. We know that someday we will have resurrection bodies like Jesus, and that gives us hope. Now, Andy, what's the groaning that Paul mentions in verse 2? And is there a relationship between what we read about here and what we read about in Romans 8, verses 18 through 25? Okay, so let me just uh, do a little kind of autobiographical or maybe even a TMI thing. I'm, you know, almost 59. Uh, The older I get, the more sounds I make as I get up. (laughs) Like uh, I just kind of grunt a little bit as I, or as I bend over. So if I drop a pen on the, I didn't used to do that. And it's like, I'm sounding like an old dude. (laughs) And so the older you get, the more that you, you groan. And Mm. I think, I think it's a sense of physical pain. Uh, We're in pain. Uh, Our lower back may be hurting. Our muscles are are tight or sore, uh, might have arthritis, different things. So there's a groaning just from simple pain. But I also think the word is significant because, as I said, in Romans chapter 8, the creation is groaning, um, waiting and yearning for the deliverance uh, from death. And so the groaning, I think, is tied to that decay and dying process as part of Adam's sin. Now, as we continue and really look at verses 2 and 3 together, in what sense are we presently naked according to Paul's train of thought here? Okay, so Paul, we, we were meant to be physical. We human beings were meant to have bodies. We were not meant to be spirit beings like angels. And so to some degree, we're not fully human while we don't have our bodies. And he's about to get to, in a few verses, this concept of being absent from the body or away from the body and present with the Lord. Or as the author of Hebrews, and we'll talk about this, talks about spirits of the righteous made perfect. So the idea here is they are spirit beings, uh, those uh, Christians who have died, they are separated from their bodies, but it's there's somehow a sense of unnaturalness to that. We were meant to have bodies. And the proof of that is the doctrine of the general resurrection. Mm. We are going to be raised 
raised up. And frankly, so are the wicked. Both the righteous and the wicked together will spend eternity in bodies. But ours will be a glorious body, a resurrection body. And so until we have that final body. Our resting place is not our grave where the headstone's going to be, some cemetery. That's not your resting place. The final resting place of a Christian is his or her resurrection body. And so until we get that, we are naked in some sense. We are unclothed. That's the language Paul uses. Paul returns to this theme of groaning that we just talked about uh, again in verse 4. What's the longing inside of us based on this verse, and how does the swallowing up of what is mortal connect with 1 Corinthians 15? Well, there's just a theological and mental or conceptual groaning because we haven't reached our destination yet. Um, Jesus likened it, and so does Paul. Both of them liken it, even here, to the idea of childbearing, a woman in birth laboring. And the reason that uh, both the earth is groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, and Christians are groaning, as Jesus said, um, a woman in labor and about to give birth is in pain and cries out, but once the child is born, she forgets her pain uh, because of the joy that a child is brought into the world. Well, the thing that's beautiful about that image is it's a pain that resolves in pure joy. So it's a special kind of groaning. We Christians are groaning temporarily. We know that this laboring, this groaning that we have is going to result in something really marvelous. Mm. Meanwhile, Paul says we groan. And so there's a mental or theological groaning. And then there's that actual literal groaning that happens when you're getting beaten up like Paul is in every city, when he's in prison, when his hands are in chains and the chains are cutting into his wrists, he's groaning. Uh, when his stomach is growling because he hasn't eaten in two days because they haven't fed him, uh, he's groaning. Uh, if his back is bleeding, as in the Philippian jail after the public beating that he and Silas endured, he's groaning. And then there's just the groaning that we do as we age and as we have have pains. Maybe some people have cancer, they have tumors, and, and it's very painful. Or maybe there's uh, a radiation um, treatment and it causes their hair to fall out and there's groaning. So I think all of that is summed up in this concept of groaning. That swallowing up language as well helps us uh, think about what's going to change in our lives and in the transformation that will occur one day when we put off that groaning. Talk a little bit about that because we spent a good deal of time in 1 Corinthians 15 when you were yeah. preaching through 1 Corinthians discussing this very topic. So that wow. swallowing up language is no small thing for Paul to include here. No. How does that impact us in this moment? That's awesome. You know, honestly, until we began this podcast this morning, uh, I had forgotten about uh, the connection, the word swallow. So what you're referring to is 1 Corinthians 15. It says death is swallowed up in victory. Mm. Um, I think what it means is it's an overwhelming, crushing victory. Death is going to be crushed. It's it's like, I don't know, a basketball game in which you win 118 to two, something like that, or a football game that you win 73 to nothing, some crazy score. It's not, it's not even going to be close. We are going to be so overwhelmingly victorious in all of this. Death is going to be swallowed up in victory. And here he says, what is mortal, the dying, the body, is going to be swallowed up by life. So it's a it's a triumphant, more than conquerors kind of assertion that Paul makes when he uses this word swallowed up. It's a it's a resounding eternal victory of life over death. 
What does verse 5 then teach us about God's purpose for us, and how should the fact that God has created us to be in eternally glorious resurrection bodies be mm-hmm. a constant encouragement to us, even while we are suffering in these mortal and aging bodies? Well, I think what it says to me, first of all, this whole thing is part of God's plan. God is very wise in all of this, and God made us or created us for this very purpose. What purpose? That we might have life swallow up uh, what is mortal, that we might have resurrection bodies. So this language, this concept that I gave a moment ago, the idea that God didn't create eyes to be blind. He didn't create the complexity of ears to be deaf. What would the point of that be? And so God made these organs that we have in our present physical bodies to do specific functions. God will not be thwarted in that. He will have his final purpose for his children. And so he wants us to be sighted. He wants us to have excellent hearing. He wants us to be able to run and not grow weary, to walk and not be faint. He wants us to have whatever power he wants to give to us. Now, that will not be omnipotence. Uh, God alone has that, but we will be very powerful. Our resurrection bodies will be raised in power and in glory. And it is God, he says, who has made us for this very purpose. So what this tells me uh, from Isaiah 14, this is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. Those two words, this is the plan and this is the hand. The idea is God makes a plan. He has a purpose for us and guess what? It's going to happen. Nothing can stop it. So in that, this is the purpose of God. We are very confident. We have an overwhelming sense of confidence, Paul. And Paul gives us that here in this this section. And verse 5 concludes uh, by assuring us that God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. What does it mean that God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, and how does the Spirit give us a foretaste of heavenly joy that sustains us in the midst of our suffering uh, in this life? Okay, so everyone who's genuinely born again is born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're born of the Spirit, John chapter 3, and the Spirit, the moment that He crafts life in us, comes to dwell within us. As Jesus said, the Spirit lives with you and will be in you. So we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is a gift from Almighty God. The third person of the Trinity living within us is an unspeakably precious gift, and he will never leave us. He will be with us forever, and he mediates Christ to us as Christ mediates the Father to us. And so the Trinity, in some mysterious sense, are living uh, within us, as Jesus said, the Father and I will come and make our home with whoever believes in me and obeys me. And so the Spirit comes and lives within us. Now, the language here, also in Ephesians 1, of a deposit guaranteeing a full inheritance is a sense of a very, very small portion of an infinite inheritance. Now, I'm not minimizing when I say a very small portion, but it is a small thing. The impact of the Spirit on us moment by moment is small compared to what we will experience in heaven Mm. of the presence and the knowledge of God. It, It is a small deposit, a portion of our heavenly inheritance. So the idea here would be, imagine somebody that was Uh, the child of the wealthiest couple on earth, a a husband and wife like, I don't know, Jeff Bezos or somebody else like that. It's worth with $100 billion and you are uh, an heir and tragically your parents die and you're still a minor, you're still a child um, and you will be the heir to the fortune, the hundred billion will be yours, but just not at age 12. It's just not wise. You're not, uh, you're not an adult yet. And so instead, the estate makes provision for you to have a stipend check to provide for your needs until you come into your full inheritance. So it's a little bit like that. Our full inheritance 
is intimate, face-to-face, perfect fellowship with God forever. That's what we get in the new heaven, new earth, in our resurrection bodies. The indwelling spirit is a small deposit, a down payment of that, Mm -hmm. giving us a sense of heavenly joy, a sense of the presence of God, of the pleasure of God with us, uh, those little tastes, those foretastes of heavenly joy, that's the deposit and it guarantees or makes certain the final inheritance. No one who tastes of the down payment or the deposit will fail to receive the full inheritance. So it gives us great confidence. This ministry of the spirit is of unspeakable value. Now, I want to say one thing. You can actually request the estate to give you a higher stipend check than you've been receiving. Uh, you could imagine in the earlier illustration of the 100 billionaire, like Jeff Bezos, whatever, and the 12-year-old uh, petitions, and he's been getting some ridiculous amount, you know, uh, every month, twenty, thirty thousand dollars 30000 $50,000 per month. That's all. Yeah, that's all. I mean, it's, it's, it's a pittance. It's a pittance. But uh, he might have increased needs, something like that. All right, so let me just speak plainly. Your experience now of your future heavenly joy can be far greater than it is. Mm. You should ask God to pour his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5. Give, ask him to give you a transporting supernatural sense of what heaven will be like. Some of the greatest saints in history, Jonathan Edwards, Sarah Edwards, um, D.L. Moody, um, others have had this experience, this foretaste of heaven on earth. Mm. Uh, Paul had, had, was transported. He, was, he says in this very book, he was caught up to heaven and he saw unspeakable things. So God may or may not do this for you, but he can greatly increase your foretaste of heavenly joy. So you should ask him for it. One of the Puritans that wrote about these experiences, heavenly foretaste, Thomas Goodwin, describes a father and his son, let's say the son's eight years old, and and the father and the son are walking along the road and they're walking hand in hand and they love each other and the son has full confidence that his father loves him and his father will always be there for him. There's no doubt in his mind about it whatsoever, but then suddenly moved by some hidden impulse, the father reaches down and picks the little boy up and hugs him and twirls him around and kisses him on the cheek and looks him in the eye and says, son, I will love you forever. Hmm. And then puts him back down on the road and the two of them walk on. Would you not say that his experience after that is greater than before? Hmm. So ask God for that. Say, God, would you please pour into my heart at a higher level than you've ever done before a sense of your love for me in Christ? And as we seek that, I think Paul would say that that ought to produce something in us, right? As we yeah. move into verse six, mm-hmm. Paul seems to think there's a reasonable reaction to this. How does Paul think we should react to what we've been discussing in verses one through yes, five? Yes, overwhelming confidence, a sense of absolute certainty of where we're heading in all this. And I would just call that biblically hope. Mm. It's a vigorous hope. What Mm. is hope but a feeling, a sense in the heart that the future is bright based on the promises of God? Well, that sense, that confidence, that boldness that we have, that that heaven's gonna be wonderful and that God loves us and and that this energetic power is at work in us, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated Jesus at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, that same resurrecting power is at work in our spirits now, moving us from glory to glory, as he said earlier, and then we'll be in our bodies raising us out of the grave. That confidence is something, that hope is something the world doesn't have. Mm. They are without hope and without God in the world. If you can be radiant with confident hope, people ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have and you'll get to evangelize. Yeah. So Paul says here in verse six, we're always confident. 
Well, Paul was a confident man, <laughs> bold because of the deposit, the Holy Spirit in his heart. Mm, that's a rich meditation for us. Mm-hmm. Now, what does Paul mean as we continue in verse six, that while we are in these mortal bodies, we are away from the Lord? All right. Well, we need to understand that carefully. It, it, it doesn't mean what, what it might read, what you might think it, it mean, you know, means. It, it, what it means is we are away from the full experience of face-to-face intimate fellowship uh, with God that we will have in heaven, uh, where he says in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. So there's the now, then, now, then. So the now part is away from the Lord. Mm. We are not actually in visible fellowship with Jesus. We're away from him. So that's what I think Paul means by it. It doesn't mean that the Lord is, you know, Jesus said, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Mm. So through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that deposit, that stipend check, we've got a sense of the presence of the Lord, but Paul still calls that away from the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And and Paul talks about how we're to see these realities. You know, we talked uh, last time, as we looked at chapter four, about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and how we have to be given sight to mm-hmm. take in that light. And you've talked before, we've talked on this podcast about uh, how faith is like the eyesight of the soul. What does it mean then in verse seven when he says, we walk by faith and not by sight? Yeah, that is so beautiful. And I just want to continue to commend that analogy. Faith is the eyesight of the soul because many verses, including this one, compare faith to sight. And so faith is the eyesight of the soul by which we see invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future. And so we walk by that eyesight, not by our physical eyesight. Now, let's not take this too far. Paul didn't close his eyes as he walked around and said, I don't (laughs) need my eyes anymore. uh, Now, clearly we need our physical sight. Obviously, some people are physically blind and Mm -hmm. they don't have their sight, but most people have, have their sight. But what Paul's saying is we walk the Christian walk We walk the Christian service. Uh, We walk in a pattern of good works, but we do that by faith, not by sight. That's what he's saying. So the actual walk, the most important walk, and again, Jesus likened it and he says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only if you find it. And then Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. So we are on this path, this narrow path, having entered through the narrow gate. We're on this narrow path and we're coming to God. We're going to God. We're not there yet in that pattern where Jesus says, uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. We're coming to the Father. We're walking. Jesus is the way. He's the way we're walking. We do that walk by faith and not by sight. And again, Paul is always mindful of what this produces. He seems to repeat himself and emphasize even again in verse 8 that they are uh, of good courage or they always have this confidence. He says, yes, we are always or we are of good courage. Mm -hmm. But he goes on to say we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Why does Paul say that he would prefer this? And what's the significance of this idea? Yeah, this is a very important verse. Very famously, William Tyndale uh, gives us in the KJV, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So this is talking about disembodied spirits. This is talking about departed saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, genuine Christians who die. 
And when they die, their spirit or soul, it doesn't matter, I won't quibble between those words, but their immaterial part of themselves, their soul is separated from the body. That separation is called death and it goes to be with the Lord. And they are absent from the body, which goes down into the, into the grave and into corruption. The body that is sown, uh, it is perishable, it is sown in dishonor, it's sown in weakness, it's the natural body. That is down in the ground and then those saints are absent from the body. They're away from the body. They're separated from the body and they are uh, present with the Lord. And he says, we would rather that. That's the very thing he says in Philippians 1. Mm. He's deciding whether he would like to live or die, uh, not suicidal, but he doesn't have any choice, but he thinks he might be executed. The Romans might just do that. So he said, now, which would I rather? He said, for myself, I would rather depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Mm. Same idea here. Yeah. He says, we would rather or prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And don't you love that word at home? Mm. The Lord Jesus is our home. He's our true home. And we are in some sense away from him. We're we're on a journey far from him and we're we're traveling to him. We're on that way, that that road that leads to life, but we're just not there yet. So for myself, Paul's saying, I would much prefer to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. But that's not even the best condition. The best condition is to be present with the Lord in our resurrection bodies. And that's where, that's where we're heading. Yeah, I love that image of home. I think of uh, rest uh, might be another a word that we think of uh, in that sense in Jesus' invitation to come to him yeah. and find rest. And ultimately that rest being when we're with him Amen. forever. Let me say one more thing. This idea of disembodied spirits, I use that frequently, that phrase. It seems like that's like for Halloween, right? We're talking about <laughs> disembodied spirits. That mm. is so creepy, like a seance and all that. Look, it's just a biblical concept. Mm. There is the immortal soul. It's not a Greek philosophical uh, concept. Uh, it is a reality. There is something, an immaterial part of us that can be separated from our body. And if we are Christians, it goes into the presence of God. And the author of Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews 12, 23, he says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that's burning with fire, Mount Sinai, mm. but you have come to the heavenly Zion. And then he says, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Spirits, so they don't have bodies, but and they are righteous. Their souls are instantly made perfect. Hence, I say that glorification comes in two stages for you know Christians until the second coming of Christ. Stage one, physical death, your inner self, your soul is instantly perfected and conformed to Christ. That means you'll never have another sin thought ever again, mm. uh, but you don't have your body yet. And then glorification part two is the resurrection of the body. So we're coming down the home stretch and we want to make sure that we have enough time to discuss verses nine and 10 as they're so rich. Uh, what's the connection between verses eight and nine, or maybe a better question, how should our future resurrection bodies motivate us constantly to please God? Yeah. I mean, nothing could be better than that. How could we ever do better? than to please the Lord. We make it our goal. It's an ambition here. And there are three um, three uh, uses of this idea of ambition. There are three ambitions uh, versus one is, Paul said, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not named, so I wouldn't mm -hmm. be building on someone else's foundation. That's in Romans 15. Uh, he says to the Thessalonians, make it your ambition to work hard with your hands, to mind your own business, and to lead a quiet life. So that's not the the same vision as Paul. That's most people that just stay home and support their families and, and work jobs and 
just live their Christian lives. That's a good ambition. But every Christian should have this ambition, this one central ambition. Mm. Everything I want is to please the Lord. If God is pleased with me, what difference does it make about any anything else? Conversely, if what I have done is displeasing to the Lord, then that should be the most grievous thing in my life. So Paul says, my goal is to bring pleasure to God. I want to live mm -hmm. to please him. Every moment I make it my goal to please him, whether I am alive or dead, he says, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. Now, before we discuss verse 10, how does this ambition in verse 9 relate to Christ's statement about his own life that we find in John 8, 29, when he says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Oh, and wow. how do saints oh. both on earth and in heaven seek constantly to mm. please God? Wes, what, wouldn't you love to say that about a single day? Mm. Like, you know, everything that I have done today has pleased the Lord. Jesus said that about his whole life. I always do what pleases him. Wow. wow. He's our goal. And mm. so the, the desire is, Lord Jesus, would you by your spirit work in God in me right now, what is pleasing to you? Hmm. Do that work in me. I don't think we can ever do any better than that. At every moment, we yearn to please him. Now, at the outset, you talked about this difficult judgment, mm -hmm. uh, the fact that some people struggle with this idea. So mm -hmm. verse 10 is important for us, I think, to understand and walk through carefully. Mm -hmm. uh, how can verse 10 first be a strong motivation for us to live a godly life? Okay, just the concept of judgment day. Someday we are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and we are going to give him an account. That should affect the way we live. We should seek to never do anything that we will have ground and cause to be ashamed of on judgment day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, John talks about this. So we, we want to live in him and walk in holy in him so that when he comes, we'll not be ashamed in his presence. We don't want to live in a way that we are ashamed. We will not spend any time. We will not in any way for all eternity be ashamed. There'll, there'll be no death, mourning, crying, or pain in heaven. But I'm just saying, dear Christian friend, Judgment Day isn't heaven yet. Mm. Judgment Day can be very difficult and heaven not difficult at all. So make a distinction between Judgment Day and the eternity we'll spend in heaven. Because in heaven, Revelation 21.4 says, no death, mourning, crying, or pain. Some of the most painful things we have in our lives uh, are shame for sin, or, or a burning sense of a missed opportunity, of sins of omission, things that we shouldn't have done and did do, sins of commission. All of these things cause us to burn. All right, it was shame. So judgment day itself, however, it's di different. We're going to give an account. Now, one Christian woman said to me, I just don't believe it because my Bible says, mm. use that technique, mm. my Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, see you right here, Pastor. It's like, well, my Bible says the same thing, so it's good. I think it's published by the same publisher, so we, we've got the same <laughs> verse. I am not talking about condemnation. Mm. I'm talking about accountability. Mm. I'm talking about giving an account. I'm talking about looking Jesus in the eye and him saying, my child, why did you do this? Mm -hmm. Or as he says to Cain, what have you done? He said it to Eve, what have you done? That's accountability. And all those stewardship parables, this master entrusts talents to them, goes away, comes back and says, what did you do with it? Mm -hmm. So we're going to give an account. How does that cause us to live? We should live wisely. Don't do anything you don't want to talk to Jesus about on Judgment Day. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had discussions on this very topic with folks um, thinking through what 
is the difference? How do we parse through that, the difference between accountability and um, condemnation? Right. And and for that very reason, like you said, many, many do reject this idea. Mm-hmm. Why should we not shrink back from this idea right. of giving an account for our lives? Mm-hmm. And do you think that this is uh, painful or pleasant mm-hmm. accounting? How how will that be for us on that day? Why should we not shrink back from this? Well, first of all, we don't shrink back because it is plainly taught. So here you are listening to this podcast. Just get the Bible, open it up, and look at 2 Corinthians 5.10. There it is. You are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and you will give him an account for everything you did in your physical body. Look at the phrase, whether good or bad. So if you do some bad thing, you're going to give an account to Jesus. Do you think that will be painful? I tell you it will be. Mm. And he will not inflict any pain of, uh, on you. The pain will be seeing the look on his face and him asking, why did you do that? Mm. I had taught you. I had convicted you. I prepared you. Mm. And still you sinned. And there won't ever be an answer because sin is essentially irrational. It's yeah. insane. But we will give an account. And so the, it, what this does is it spurs us on toward holiness and toward zeal in evangelism and, and ministry. That's what it should do. Yeah. Ponder the more we ponder or see by faith ahead of time what judgment day will be like, the better we will live. So the simple idea here is if you don't want to give an account to the Lord uh, for something, then don't do it. Mm. Now, if you say, what about the past things? There's literally nothing you can do about the past. It's part of God's record book and you will give him an account. But at least what you can do is learn from it. If you've made some mistakes or committed some sins in the past, learn from them uh, so that you don't do them again in the future. That's the best you can do. But we, we, we face up to this by saying this is a biblical teaching, this idea of judgment day and accounting. And again, I've referred to the parables, the stewardship parables of which there are many, mm-hmm. the 10 minas, the five talents, two talents and one talent. Um, you know, there's numbers of these master entrusting property and going away and then coming back. Uh, so what that means is when he comes back, he's going to ask you what you did with his stuff. And his stuff is money. His stuff is opportunities, your talents, your intelligence, your spiritual gifts, your children, your spouse, everything. Mm. And he's going to ask you what you did with it. So my, my feeling is immerse yourself in this concept and live well. Mm. And if, you, if you're convicted by this, I would say live better. Live better than you've been living because you are going to give an account. But keep in mind, it is also going to be pleasant because you will get to see um, the look of pleasure in his face. Jesus being pleased with the good works you do. It isn't just bad. It's also good. So for the first time, you'll be able to sense his pleasure in your good works. Well done, good and faithful mm. servant. So both both difficult and pleasant at the same time. What a powerful thing for us to think about, casting ourselves on the grace of God. Even I think of Jesus teaching about the cup of cold water, right? For those who gave it and thought little of it because it was just a cup of cold water, yeah. that's a good thing that gets yeah. celebrated. And for those who didn't, that's a thing that they ought to have done. And so I think there's even just this this greater, grander, uh, God-sized accounting of our lives that we can't even fully comprehend. But may this motivate us to holiness. Amen. It's a powerful passage for us to think about. Andy, any final thoughts for us on these first 10 verses of chapter 5? Well, I just love these verses. I think it's exciting uh, to consider uh, the future resurrection body, to realize the groaning we're doing now. The Bible is so realistic. The Bible faces honestly what we feel as we age. Or as we have injuries that never really heal, Mm. uh, as we go through difficult things to say, you know, the Bible explains that, but the Bible tells me the ending is very happy and we can exult in that. And meanwhile, we're given some some remarkable motivations in this passage. We want to please the Lord energetically with the time we have left on earth. And we want to realize we're going to give an account for good or bad, everything good 
uh, in us was worked by him, by his spirit. All the bad things were worked by us through our fleshly nature. To realize this will help us to live well for his glory. So this is an excellent study today. Well, thanks, Andy. This has been episode five in our Second Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode six, entitled The Ministry of Reconciliation, where we'll discuss Second Corinthians chapter five, verses eleven through twenty-one. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys Podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.